0: I'm going to need you to turn to two different places this morning in God's Word, Psalm 51 and 2 Samuel chapter 12, Psalm 51 2 Samuel chapter 12. We are concluding the series behind the music, uh, and of course the series has, series has always been around uh, King David. And uh, today we are dealing with the second part of what we are calling his corruption— there was something that definitely went wrong in David's life, and uh, we started the conversation about that last week, and we're going to continue to do that this morning. So look at the introduction. King David's godly character begins to erode into what many call the corrupted years of his life. This did not happen overnight, this is the part we need to all take note of. It involved a steady progression of disobedience, discontentment, and a lack of discipline that seem to be motivated by a midlife crisis. Now, you know, if you've been around here any length of time, you know that uh, I'm one of those who believes that the Bible speaks to the hearts of men today. Written thousands of years ago, I'm one of those who believes that what we read in the pages of God's Word is life-changing. Not only life-changing, transformative, not only transformative, but can literally speak to the issues of our heart. And, and, and so at that approaching God's Word that way means that many times we're going to talk about specific issues that relate to very specific people. And so this morning, we are going to be talking about the, uh, what goes into a midlife crisis, and some of you are too young to, to know what that may be like, but it's coming in some form or another, and then some of you, maybe you've already gone past that, and, you're, you, and if you're like me, I've gone past it, I look back on it and think, thank God that's over with, uh, let's move on, uh, but there's something I want to share with you this morning that I think is, is, is definitely something we need to take note of. Because this time in a person's life can be very, very dangerous. I want you to look at, uh, or look here on the screen, 1 Kings chapter 15. The Bible says, David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life. And then we have this word, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. There was one moment in David's life that that, that set something off that brought some form of corruption and destruction in his life, not only in his life, but also in the life of some of his family members. And what we find here is it's just that one moment, and that's something we all need to take note of. The enemy is looking for that one moment in a person's life to bring absolute destruction to them. And King David... It's just in his story, we see it so clearly. But every one of us stand the risk of falling in to that whole idea of what the enemy's trying to do in many people's lives, in our lives, and that is to bring destruction. So let's review last week. First of all, we saw the erosion of David's character. We looked last week at the prestige. There was something that was coming to David. David was getting a lot of notoriety. David was being loved by all the people. And sometimes that's very difficult to, 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 to maneuver through, especially if you're someone who comes from humble beginnings like David did. But that, that's on the agenda. And then we saw in David's life in, second, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 5, the pagan practices. He began to marry other women. We began to see it in the movement of the ark. There are specific ways in which God says you move the ark of the covenant, and David was using pagan forms in which to move the ark the way the rest of the world would have done it. And then we see a glimpse of his pride beginning to reshape his heart. And then, of course, we saw the palace. There at the palace, he was lazy. His recklessness, we saw that. And what we saw in this was the situation ensnared his mind. The situation erased his reason. The situation eclipsed his God. He goes out onto his, I guess what you would call the rooftop of his palace, and he looks across and he sees Bathsheba, the Bible says bathing, and I happen to believe it wasn't just one time, it was probably other times in which he caught a glimpse of this beautiful woman the way the Bible describes it. And it was the snare in which the enemy began to do great damage in his life. But again, it didn't happen overnight. There was a steady progression of something that took hold of David's life, and we see it so clearly in the Scriptures. But he became reckless. But what was even worse, he he became impulsive. He became impulsive. And, And that's where we get this idea. Sin occurs when there's an undetected weakness, an unprotected heart, and an unexpected opportunity. The thing that we all need to understand is this. The enemy knows our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities. He knows those things. And that is what he attempts to set up his his destruction on. He begins to maneuver certain times in a person's life, and and I think all of us agree there are seasons of life. There are all kinds of seasons of life. And the enemy knows that, that human nature. He understands the flesh. He knows how to exploit the flesh that is within us. And here in King David's life, around midlife, we estimate he was probably in his mid-40s when all this took place. And all of a sudden, there was something there that ensnared him. But we see his impulsiveness. Next, we see his ruthlessness and his heartlessness. After it was discovered that Bathsheba was with child, all of a sudden, he, he had to erase anything that would implicate him, basically. And so, you know the story. He, he not only had the affair, he turns right around and has her husband killed in an attempt to cover everything up. As we said last week, I believe David was one of those men, after it was all said and done, who looked at what he had done and said, I never dreamed I was capable of doing what I've just done. Which leads us to today. If you look on your outline, the expression of David's confession. In Psalms chapter 51, along with two other Psalms in the Bible, it reveals that David was truly a believer. And the reason I know that is because of the way he wrote Psalm 51. It was like his sin was haunting him. And we see it so clearly. The first thing we see is what David called it. David began to see his sin as an offense to God, but there's three things he called a sin. First of all, he called it a transgression, a transgression, stepping over the line or crossing boundaries. There was something that was in his life. There was something that was set up. The days of his life, he served the Lord. He was obedient. The Bible says, I mean, mean, you think about what 1 Kings says. It says he did all things right up until the moment, or except the moment of Uriah, when all this began to happen. It was then that he stepped across the line. Look at Psalm 51, verse 1. He says, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, and here's what he says, blot out my transgressions. The times where I crossed the line. The time where I I, 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 I went past the boundaries. I want you to think about our sin. Our sin is a transgression. And and really when you begin to look at what God has put in place for us as as those who love him and and follow him. he, He did. He created the law. And the law was not just a measure to show how sinful we are and how holy he is. The law was also put in place to, to bring about the best life for us. And there were times in which God said, thou shall not do this, thou shall not do that. And it wasn't that God was being a killjoy or trying to keep us from having any kind of fun or whatever. He was basically saying, these are the things that would cost you dearly if you step into these things. And David sees his sin as a fact he crossed over to that line. Second of all, he calls it iniquity. The word iniquity means a twisting, a perverting of what is intended. There's there's intentionality in what's going on. God had this intention, and he he desired this for David. He desires it for all of us. But all of a sudden, we begin to twist or pervert what he says. He says it in verse 2. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity from the perversions, my perversions, from the twisting of what is intended, and cleanse me from my sin. Next, he calls it sin itself. And that means missing a mark or missing the standard. Verse 3, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. You know what David is saying here, as I said in verse 3, as I said earlier, his sin was haunting him. His sin was haunting him. Now, let me say this. I'm going to make a bold statement here, but I believe it with everything in me. If you are living in sin or you have committed a sin and cannot relate to what David writes here in Psalms 51, you may want to ask yourself have you truly been saved? Have you truly been in a place where God has saved you? Because here's where I am. I'm a firm believer that when we come to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, the Spirit of God lives within us, comes to live within us. And it is then that all of a sudden the things that we do when we miss the mark, when we pervert something, when we step over the line, there's there's something that comes with that. There's a weight that carries with that. If we truly know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. See, King David wasn't just some pagan king out there. No, he knew what it was like to have a relationship with God. And he knew and he could identify when everything went wrong. and That's where he finds himself. Y'all, I, you know my testimony. I, I, I definitely was one of those. I was saved as a child. I came to know him in my childlike faith and started living for him and trusting his word and reading his word, finding more about him. And I got into my teenage years, my latter teenage years, and, and I fell away. I've met many of you. You've done done the same thing at some point in your life. But I'm here to tell you that one of the reasons I knew I was saved is how my sin did haunt me and how the shame was real and how the guilt was real and all that was in place and the, the conviction that fell upon my heart. That is an indicator that I had a relationship with God that now I'm longing to have back or the fact that my sin is haunting me, as David has said in this moment. Next, we see the extension of David's conduct. The first thing we see here, go ahead and turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 2, is we see the confrontation of David's sin. Someone confronts him. The guy's name is Nathan. He's a prophet of the day. God is using this prophet, Nathan. And I'll be honest with you, there's a lot of times when prophets would show up and what God had laid on the heart to say, sometimes was not taken well, and some of them lost their lives as a result. But Nathan was truly a man of God, and and he goes before the king. So look at 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse two, I mean, verse one, it says, then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, there were two men in one city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb. Now think about this. Nathan's telling a story. We know there's there's not anything to the story other than the fact he's making a parallel to David's sin. How many of you find it amazing that, that Nathan is using the idea of a lamb? He's basically, if you really think about what the Spirit of God's doing here through this prophet, he's taking David back to those early years when he was a shepherd boy. He's taking him back when the fondness of the Father and God was so real to him, and he would be on the hillside, and there would be great fellowship with he and God. You say, well, how do you know that? Because I've read the Psalms. And this prophet is carrying him back to something that's tender to David, the Lamb and then he says in verse three, "But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished it, and up, grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him." And a traveler came to the ri- uh, and a traveler came to the rich man, who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. David's, all of a sudden, he's looking at the story, and he's like, how dare him? Now, why would David relate so well to it? Because that's where David started out. I'm sure he grew fond of the lambs he was keeping. I'm sure he could relate to the story, and all of a sudden, there's this thing, but here's what I'm convinced. David's anger, I believe, speaks of his own anger, That's really towards himself. There was something subconsciously happening here. I think deep down, David saw himself in this story, and we see him. We see what appears to be a demonstration of his shame. And his guilt, verse 5, and David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. He's basically, bring him to me. I'll take him out. And it says in verse 6, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. No pity. Then it says, then Nathan said to David, here it is. You are the man, David you're the man. And we see it here. So we see the confrontation of David's sin. Next, we see the confession of David's sin. If you look at verse uh, 13, so David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. This is not one of these that's going to lead to death. David, you're going to be okay. But however, there will be consequences. Listen to what he says. Because you've done this deed, you were given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme me. Blaspheme. The child also who is to be born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. So we see the confrontation, we see the confession, and then we see the consequences of David's sin. If you continue to read on here, you're going to find out that all this came at a great cost to David. The, the, the Bathsheba, as she was carrying the child, the child is going to eventually die. And all of a sudden, there's a consequence that's laying there before him, but it doesn't end there. It goes on to the corruption of David's children. If you know anything about the life of David, you're going to find out from this point on, from chapters 13 to 18, what you're going to find out is that David, it appears his life goes downhill at that moment. His own son is eventually going to turn on him and try to take the kingdom. All kinds of havoc will come to play in the life of David. Now, some of you may be sitting here, and you may be saying, you know something? Boy, that, that's a high cost It costs David. Boy, that, that, that's big-time stuff. Let, let me just say this. To, to much God gives, much is respected. There's no way God could allow David, being such a public figure, the leader of his people, to get away with what he had done. The consequences had to be in place, and they were and they were alive and well. David's corruption extended to his children and created much dysfunction in those that he loved. The old preachers of yesterday used to say this, and I'm sure you've heard it. Sin will carry you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you ever want to pay. That is such a true statement. That's such a true statement. At this point, I think David would have to agree. David would have gotten to the point where, amen to that. I mean, I I see it. It's played out in my life. But here's the application. And while we entertain that idea of an application, we're in no ways through with this sermon, okay? But here's the application. David was content with the life God had called him to live. There was a breakdown that began to happen. God was his substance for life, and pleasing him was all that mattered. But then David became discontent. From there, he believed as many that an affair would satisfy his discontent heart. This led to his corruption. And here it is. When you are not content in God's provision for your life, then you become vulnerable to corruption. And really, what's the question? Are you content in God's provision for your life? Are you content with the, what God has established up to this point? Or are you are you, or are you vulnerable to follow the path of David? Remember remember David's Psalm Psalm 23? "The Lord is my shepherd. What? I shall not want. He's all I ever need." And the blessings that he brings in my life, that's all I need. I don't don't find any discontentment in the Lord until his encounter with Bathsheba. You see, many of us don't understand fully that that there are certain times in our lives, as I said before, where the, the enemy can cause great damage to our reputation, to our testimony, to our family, to even our own soul. If we don't awaken to what he's up to. And so last week, I, I, I want to review a couple things we said last week. And then we're going to kind of move into some new stuff. I want to help, help you this morning. And, and, and I'm going to phrase this as it's intended for men. But it was amazing how many women who came to me after the gatherings last week, some emailed me this week, I even had a conversation with my wife, and some of the things that she's dealt with, and some of the things maybe she's gone through, and and, and here's what I found. That women have their own version of a midlife crisis. And for many women, it happens more in their 30s. Almost every woman I'll talk to said they remember something like that in their 30s. And for many women, it, it doesn't necessarily take the shape of what it does for many men, but he, many women would say this. They got married, they had the children, and all of a sudden they realized that the expectations that they had for that whole scene was not reality. The fairy tale of getting married and having children and having this and having that didn't pan out. The way they thought. The expectation did not match the reality. And there's a lot of women that I think can relate to what I'm talking about. Because it is, it's difficult. And then men, we as men, we, we're so. Uh, just let me just say this: the next one's just as messed up as the one you got, okay? <laughs> Amen. Yeah. I'm just here to tell you, men are men in their own way. And, And that expectation, really, if you think about it, in a fallen world, probably could never play out. But ladies, this fairy tale, you need to realize that God, listen, God can bring blessings and honor and all that. We just need to be aware of where the enemy's attacking. And so I'm giving this more from the point of view to you men, but ladies, you're going to hear some similarities too. So here it is. What is a midlife crisis? Many have called it a second childhood, a second adolescence, male menopause, an attempt to sidestep morality. Can it can affect every area of a man's life. It can affect him spiritually, emotionally, mentally, physically, relationally, and occupationally. I've seen it play out. I've talked to enough men. And by the way, a lot of men who show up that I talk to don't even realize they're going through anything like this. They just don't understand what's going on within them. They don't understand the discontentment that they're feeling. Uh, There's men who come and they say, I'm just ready to walk away from it all. Now that I've gone through it, (laughs) I can help you because I can relate to every bit of that. And most of what I received during those times were lies from the enemy, lies that I could have easily believed. Do all men go through a midlife crisis? Midlife, yes. If you live long enough, you're going to go through it. Does it have to be a crisis? Not necessarily. I've seen men go through it, and they're honest with me, and it didn't create a major crisis for them. And they got through it okay. So, so you ladies who are sitting here beside your husbands or, or whatever, it, it doesn't mean it became a midlife crisis for them. If they, if they showed up with their hair colored a different way or came home with hair and they don't normally have hair. <laughs> or, or Sorry, guys, I had to throw it out there. Or the red convertible or whatever it may be. Maybe they are going through something, okay? No. But here's what I want you to understand. It doesn't necessarily have to be a crisis for a man. And I've seen men who go through it, and it wasn't a crisis. It was a period of evaluation like we're going to talk about in just a moment. So what are the symptoms of the midlife crisis? I gave you this last week. Lack of motivation, feelings of being trapped in a career. Some men even feel it uh, with the family, feelings of being trapped. Self-doubt, self-pity, discouragement. I've met men during this time, say it's the most depressing time of their life. Worthlessness, aging in appearance. Physically, they're fatigued. We know from from the fact that around this age, testosterone levels begin to drop. Everything begins to change. Here's the key. The reaction to these symptoms, that's where the danger comes from. Reacting to these things is where it begins. So, what makes a midlife crisis so dangerous? This is the new part of what we haven't discussed. First of all, men don't like to talk about it. Many of us men... We like to think we can handle things on our own, okay? I know I'm talking to most of you right now because that's where men do it. We just suck it up and go on and try to survive it and get through it. But this is when the enemy isolates us as men. You see, the Bible talks about the roaring lion being Satan. Do you know how the lion roars? The lion roars basically to create fear and panic and anxiety. And if you were to get a man to talk about a midlife crisis, they say they experience every bit of that. But here's where the the line roars. The line roars to create fear and and discontentment and and all these things in the the praise life. And all of a sudden, it starts running here and there and creates all this havoc. And that's what you tend to hear. And what it does is it isolates you. Next, the risk of destroying integrity and influence Another thing that happens radical decisions, causing radical damages and even destruction of meaningful relationships through affairs or financial irresponsibility. They can show up. The risk of costly deception that's where I see it play out many times. And it comes back to what I'm sure David could have said I never knew I was capable of doing this. Never knew. Someone has said this. I think it helps us to understand better. A young man looks to the future, hopes, goals, dreams. An old man looks to the past, accomplishments and regrets, while a midlife man looks to the here and now. And that's where it can become dangerous, to the here and now. Is this all there is? Is this the only type of experience I'm going to have over here? Is this going to be this over here? All those things. Uh, loses sight of consequences. Loses sight of what matters most. It's amazing how men, many times men and, and women I've seen it in both to walk away from what matters most to them. It can be the most selfish time of a person's life, a man's life. Entitlement, entitlement due to past accomplishments. It's that whole idea of that man feeling trapped, and all of a sudden they're trapped, and they begin to think, you know, I've done this for so many years, I deserve blank, blank, blank. Panic due to face immorality turns to distractions and escapes to fill the void of lost youth. Someone has said this, a soul with a void can be very dangerous because there's always a motivation to fill the void at any cost. And for many of us, the void is, 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 that we have in our souls this place that God's intended to fill the void in the first place. And then it becomes the people that God's brought into our lives to help fill the void. That spouse, those children, the experiences of what God desires to do in and through that. What a man or a person turns to in his attempt to fill the void can turn out to be the most dangerous part of the midlife crisis. So, what is at the core of midlife crisis? A man not only facing his morality, but here it is, this is where most people miss it, but also grieving the loss of his youth. That's where a lot of it is. I've talked to men over the years, and we're going to get to this in just a moment, but I've talked to men over the years, and and when they begin to describe what they're feeling during this period, and I went through the same thing, literally what they're telling me, they're describing the stages of grief when you really strip it down, and they're grieving over lost youth. But the Bible says this, therefore do not lose heart, don't be discouraged, though outwardly. Vitally, we are wasting away. Boy, that's great to hear, isn't it? (laughs) Yet inwardly, spiritually, we are being renewed, a new work, day by day. You see, I'm convinced if we could have got our mind wrapped around that in the first place, maybe in our 20s, it doesn't necessarily have to be a crisis in our 40s. If we just begin to live out what the Bible says and realize that this body's not going to live forever, this body's going to go through some transforming of itself, and it's not going to work to our favor. But yet, if we somehow could get a hold of the fact that there's something that God wants to do in us that will not only last through this life and get healthier and healthier, it will last on to eternity also. But it's amazing to focus. So, how to survive a midlife crisis? Here's your help. Number one, be aware of midlife crisis grieving stages. I mean, think about it the stages of grief denial, angry, uh, excuse me, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. That is those steps. But what about this? What, What does it look like? Well, first of all, there's denial, there's anger, frustration for many men, there's a reply of glory days or regrets. How many of you have gone through that period in your life where, and maybe this carries on in the old man age too, because I find myself doing it now too. I remember when I was your age, <laughs> I had the privilege, uh, privilege, I don't know if it's a privilege, but when I was younger, I lived, um, we grew up in Wilmington and, and, uh, y'all have heard of Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan uh, was from Wilmington also, and he would show up and, um, And take the court from us, the guys I was playing with, basically. But he and his guys would come, and you know, if you lose, you just you you lose the court. You know that kind of thing. Do y'all know how that etiquette goes? But anyway, it got to the point we just walk off the court when they showed up. You know. And, and, and so you know uh, during my midlife crisis you know it was more about you know yeah I, I used to see uh, before my life crisis it may have been something like I used to see Michael Jordan before he wasn't nobody he didn't even know who he was and then I heard Dean Smith was recruiting him and all of a sudden it was like oh he's on the radar okay well okay to midlife crisis yeah I used to play against Michael Jordan <laughs> imagine how we embellish those old stories isn't it don't laugh at me, y'all, y'all do the same thing. I mean, going up and down the hills in the snow to go to school, I mean, it's just, I mean, don't talk to me about that stuff. But we, we do, we, there's, a, there's the glory days. And then for some men, it's the regrets. They're at this point in their life and they don't understand why they didn't add up to everything they thought they should have added up to. Life did not play out the way they thought it was gonna play out. They didn't reach this goal or that goal. A lot of disappointment. Depression can set in. Withdrawal. can't tell you how many women have said to me before, I, I don't know my husband anymore. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have a way in anymore. And then, acceptance. You get on on the other side. You're older. You become wiser. But in the process, don't destroy everything. We're probably all going to go through this, but the key is to hold on with everything you got. Abide in Christ are the words that we hear uh, in Scripture. Put on the full armor of God, as Charlie took part of my sermon this morning to read. You know, it's those things. And then here's something else. Put safeguards in place. For many men, let me tell you what happens in this. The escapes become fantasies. And many feed the fantasies. Don't feed the fantasy. Be wise and seek counsel before making life-altering or life-changing decisions. How to survive a midlife crisis? Reach out to men for support and accountability. Older men, those who may have gone through it. Do not withdraw. Don't become isolated. That's the last thing you need to do is become isolated. For you men who are in positions where you're already lonely, maybe you're a leader, maybe you're one of those men that are kind of at the top of where you are or whatever, that's a very lonely place to feel and be at times. Um, Be careful during that time because you're already at a place where you don't reach out to a whole lot of people anyway. And that's dangerous anyway. Be careful. You are more open to pray than anybody because you don't have the pattern of talking to other people in your life because you you feel like it can come back to bite you, those in leadership positions. You need to be careful. Next, reevaluate expectations for yourself and others. Be more realistic. So what? you didn't meet your goal by the time you were 45 or whatever age. So, so what? Now, the Bible says God's mercies are new each day. That means there's new opportunities every day. That means there's things that we can get started now. We can move on. Read about your expectations of yourself and others, especially if you're married with your wife. As you're getting older, your wife's getting older. Don't know what I'm talking about? Seasons of marriage. Proverbs 518. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. Let me let me tell you what's happening here, and I learned this at a marriage conference. There's something called limerence. You ever heard of limerence? It's the part that gets a lot of you in trouble that you don't understand. And here it is, it's a state of mind resulting from romantic attraction, characterized by feelings of euphoria, the desire to have one's feelings reciprocated. It's what happens when you first meet someone, and all those tingly feelings come back. Anybody remember those days? Long time ago, wasn't it? You know, um, uh, and, and what happens is people, and they say that only lasts like 18 months. Sorry to disappoint those who are waiting to get married, but (laughs) how many of you know what I'm talking about? We used to say, is the honeymoon over yet? Oh, yeah. But a lot of men and a lot of women fall prey in wanting to reunite or reignite these feelings just to see if they still got it. be a dangerous time. Attempt to regain the feelings of youth. Next, reevaluate life's goals or create new ones. Look at where you are. Uh, This was a good time. I, I don't know if my wife remembers, but that was a big time when I was doing a lot of goal setting in my marriage. That's when I started evaluating. You know, I, you know, there's some things in here didn't quite get there financially or whatever you want to say. But, but the the feelings of failure that come with it many times are more than men can handle, and they begin to look for unhealthy escapes at that point. Be careful with that. Get with your wife. Dream together about what may play out. Focus more on future possibilities that will help you have a thriving legacy. You see, about that time I was going through it, grandchildren started showing up. That was fun. That, that took my attention a, 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 away from a lot of what I was experiencing. All of a sudden, yes, this is, I like this. You know, I, I tell men, and, and I'm not, I hope you're not naive, there's times I meet with men and they're ready to walk away from their family at times. And I beg them, don't give up now. Don't give up now. Don't give up now. There's going to come a different type season that you're not experienced, have experienced before. There's something that still awaits you out there that you and your wife can enjoy the fruit of the labor of your marriage up to that point. Hang in there. You won't regret it. Next, invest in others. Practice selflessness. I told you before, it's the most uh, self-centered time of our lives many times, but begin to reach out. Talk to other people about what you're going through. Warn the next generation, and that's what I'm trying to do today. Take better care of yourself. Maybe part of the reason you're feeling the way you're feeling is you're not been taking care of yourself. Exercise. Get on the treadmill every now and then. Eat healthy. You can have the cheese fries one time a week, not three times a week. (laughs) How to survive. This is one of the key parts of it all. Move from what your identity is in to who your identity is in. For many of us, our identity is what the world tries to tell us our identity should be in. How we look, what, what it took for us to be successful. What have we done to get to this point, this point, this point? And the world begins to dictate the successes in our lives when really our whole identity is not in those things. The Bible's very clear. Don't put your identity in those things. Solomon, the greatest man who ever lived, tried to do that. He put his identity into everything. Read, read Ecclesiastes. And he came out at the end He said, none of it worked. I'm still as empty as I was before I started. And then he found it in Christ, or in God, because he found out his new identity, or what his identity was. I think this really, when you really think about this, this here, this point, it, you need to start understanding your life in the context of God and His Word. you got to get in the Word. While we have an example of David who failed in his midlife crisis, how many of you have heard of Joseph of the Old Testament? This is a man who excelled in that. The difference was David continued to go to the roof to feed whatever was in there. What do we read about Joseph? When the opportunity came and basically slapped him in the face, he ran. You remember the story? Potiphar's wife? He ran. Next, be aware of spiritual warfare. The spiritual warfare I faced during my midlife crisis, whatever you want to call it, was the most intense warfare I've ever experienced in my life. I felt like I was fighting hell by the acre. I'll be honest with you. There's times that. Anyway, the temptation. Here it is. Can anything good come from a midlife crisis? Here's what many people would say, even psychologists, but I think this is really what God's Word is saying. Midlife is a difficult transitional season of life that can be followed by a period of self-evaluation and reassessment. I think that's good. I think that's healthy. The problem is the enemy comes in and he distorts it all, just like he does everything else that God has built into us. Midlife for most men, like I said last week, is a transition from success orientation to significance orientation. But what many men do, what many people do, is they hold on to the success orientation. But it's intended to move us to something more significant. And we find that in the book, Halftime, by Bob Buford. Next, let me give you the scripture for the man in the midlife. This This is where it is, okay? First of all, in the crisis, if the crisis has led you to sin, confess and repent. First John 1 John 1:9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then this is the one that you really need to pay attention to. Acts 3:19. Repent, therefore, be converted. That means a change of mind. Start moving in the right direction. Let it totally transform you. That your sins may be blotted out. Listen, it's not a matter of where God has taken the sin. It's a matter of what you're doing with the sin. He... he the problem is many of us don't blot it out. We still live in the, in, in the grief of it all. We still live in the shame of, of, of it all. God can, remove, can move you past that. How do we know that? Because it says this, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. How about this? If the crisis is leading you to temptation to sin, what if you're exactly where I was in the midst of it all and didn't really know where to turn, didn't really understand what you were going through? 1 Corinthians 10 says this, no temptation has overcome you except such as common to man. When it says common to man, it means there's a good chance every other man in the world's faced the same thing you were facing at that moment. It's out there. It's not something new just for you. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. You can still have success in anything the enemy throws at you. The Bible says, greater is he who is within me than he who is in the world. But with the temptation would also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Scripture in the midlife crisis, I don't have time to read it anyway, so I'm, Charlie, I'm glad you did. Put on the armor of God. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, put on the armor of God. And then lastly, as I said last week, Be sober. Be diligent. Be watchful to detect dangers. what that word means. Because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion seeking the person he may devour. He's looking. I want to I give you some practical help. There's a, be careful where you turn. You guys who may be going through this, the ladies, particularly men, there's a lot of books out there written about midlife. Be careful who you're reading. Be careful. I'm serious. There's a book that's that's out there, and this is the best book I've come across. When I discovered what I was going through, see, it says, Men in Midlife Crisis, Jim Conway. Not Tim Conway, Jim Conway. (laughs) Okay? When I read this book, I could not believe how much I identified with what he was writing about. And the first thing you need to do to overcome anything, including sin, is you gotta be able to identify it. And this is a great way to identify what you may be going through. I want to close with this prayer. And, and and I'm basically putting this towards men, but ladies, you I don't know where you are this morning. But but I, I basically just bow your heads. And guys, you don't have to repeat after me. I, I put every bit of this information back there on the eye desk. I encourage you to take one of those sheets. And if you're digital, you can go and find all that information attached to this sermon. But here's what I wanna do. I wanna pray for you right now. And this is the prayer, I've written it out. And this is a prayer I want you to pray for yourself if you're going through something like this. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Dear God, I feel I'm in a battle for my life, family and testimony. I'm fighting to maintain my integrity in the midst of a darkness that constantly surrounds me. Simply put, I do not trust myself with certain temptations. I ask you to protect me from evil and give me the strength to overcome it. Impart to me the motivation and desire to not feed my flesh but to renew my spirit. I ask you for your wisdom during this time of deception that consumes my mind Help me to realize that my identity, that's who I really am, is not found in my fears, my youth, my career, or these fantasies that plague my mind, but in you and who you say I am. Help me to be fully aware of the consequences that could follow my decision or decisions to act on my evil lust. Help me to be the man my wife, children, and church can count on as I face this battle. And most of all, help me not to disgrace your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Let this be your prayer. This was born, this prayer was born out of my midlife crisis. Let it be your prayer.